everybody doing tonight? Tonight's the last night of revival, so we need to give it our all. Let's stand and worship together. One, two, three, four. in this place, your glory on our face, we're looking to the sky, descending like a cloud, you're standing with us now, Lord,
declare that tonight father god you are our god you last forever father god you reign forever father god we declare your name tonight lord as we come to close with this first revival father god we just thank you so much for the power that you've poured into these speakers father god i just pray that you continue to do that tonight father god and you continue to pour into us as we reach to you father god 
let us not stop tonight after this, this the word comes, Father God. Let us continue out for the rest of the year, for the rest of our lives. Father God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to our sixth and final night of first week, but I hope it's not uh, final in your hearts tonight. I hope that you'll carry and put into practice those things which we have uh, been a part of this weekend as we've, uh, it's been a great week and we've learned a lot and God has been here and shown up and so I just hope that you will open your hearts one more time tonight and receive all that God has for you as John continues his uh, rant on um, <laughs> revelations and uh, we're excited about that John, we really are and, uh, but I just want to remind you of one thing, you know what that one thing is? All church meeting. I'll remind you of the offering after a while, but <laughs> the all church meeting next Wednesday night, seven o'clock. We hope that you've got that on your calendar by now and you're going to be here. We're not going to, if you're not at the meeting, we're going to not tell you what the meeting was about. So you got to be there to hear about it. And everybody that's there is not, we're going to swear that or swear them to secrecy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyway, hope you'll be there. John, thanks for being here and come on up and let us have it, man. So here's my commitment to you tonight. Thank you, sir. Uh, we will have some fun. We will swim through some deep waters tonight, and at least some of you will be, leave here thoroughly frustrated. Amen. Uh, I have really enjoyed being here. It has, been, uh, it has been a gift to me. I have received it that way. I, uh, we had a, a, probably mostly my own fault, but we had a, a pretty tough end of the year, and uh, I, God knew, knew that I would need a week, kind of just a way to clear the cobwebs. And so I've been, uh, I've been super grateful. And I, I love Buddy and Gay and your staff. I love being here with the, all of them and all of you. But man, God has, has met me here. Come to find out God lives in Fredericksburg. So uh, <laughs> God has met me here and, and I've been able to, went to the downtown library and today I went to the uh, battlefield there in Fredericksburg and and man, that statue, I remember it from years ago, the statue. You know what I'm talking about, right? Richard Roland Kirkland and the Angel of St. Mary's Heights. Ugh, probably have to come back and see that again. I need that ever so often. So thank you. Thank you for that. I am on a quest, I am on a quest to find the worst mascot names in the land. And I have for you tonight... Uh, it's an ever-evolving list, but I have for you tonight what I believe to be, at this point, my 10 least favorite, and kind of them because of it, my most favorite, mascot names in all the land. And I've brought these 10 to you today. Number 10, it's the Evergreen State College Geoducks. And just so you know, this is a geoduck. I still don't know what it is. <laughs> and then we have the Evansville Purple Aces, number 8. The Grays Harbor College Chokers. Yeah, see, I want to play them every week. I want to play them, the Chokers, every week. The Long Beach State Dirtbags. The Polka Dots. And here is the very scary dot. This is actually a real thing. Yep, that's their mascot. Number five, the Pace Setters. The MIT, uh, let's see, the MIT Engineers. Just nobody's afraid of these people. The, who do you have next? Oh, that's right. 
<laughs> I changed the engineers for this one. Uh, offered to you without comment the Hoopiston Corn Jerkers. <laughs> and here's their mascot. All right, all right. And then uh, the three, the Hooker Horny Toads. Now there is, there is really a funny story. This is actually a high school in uh, Oklahoma. Uh, there is a town called Hooker. And for the longest time, they were called the Horny Toads. Until the students finally rose up and they went to their principal and they said, seriously, the horny toads, can we be something else? And sure enough, the students led a revolt and today they are the bulldogs and God is more pleased. Okay, number two, <laughs> the Scottsdale fighting artichokes. And right now my favorite is the UC Santa Cruz banana slugs and it looks like this. Bam, there you go. <laughs> Banana slugs. Now, my, my sister uh, knows that I am actually on the hunt for all these terrible, terrible mascot names. And so, every time I do something like this, she listens to it, and then she goes and buys me another shirt. And I actually have several of these <laughs> shirts. <laughs> I think I was wearing the, Senate, the uh, banana slug shirt today as Buddy and I ran around. Here, here's the thing about mascots. Uh, mascots, if it's a good mascot... It communicates something about you or, or about you all, right? You want a good mascot name to communicate something about you that makes you a little bit dangerous, that makes you at least a little bit intimidating because if we're going to get into competition, we need our mascot name to help us to overcome the opposition. Because, right, that's how we move forward and get ahead. We must defeat our enemies, and on the way, it's always better if we can actually intimidate our enemies, too. Have you ever watched any rugby? Uh, if you have, there is a New Zealand bunch called the All Blacks, and they do this little dance before every match, and it is incredible, and it is designed just to kind of freak out the opposition, and I brought one for us to take a look at tonight. It, it looks like this. Best to come first, the All Black Hawker. After something like that. Let me, let me ask you a question as we move into now the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. And I'll connect a few dots for you before we move on into the, the scripture. But I need to ask you this question. 
To the extent that we understand ourselves as being on the same team, and we'll call that team Christianity. What do we want our mascot to be? Right? What do we want our mascot to be? There's no doubt, right, that, that we, we have to kind of fight every once in a while for, for what's ours. We feel like we have to fight and defend the faith. So as we move into those struggles and contests and competitions, what do we want our mascot to be? The people of God have asked this question for ages. They actually struggled with this question in the Old Testament they struggled with it throughout the New Testament. I would submit to you that we're still struggling with what our mascot ought to be. What mascot should we choose that communicates not only who we are, but who we're supposed to be? Who we're supposed to be? What mascot does that for us? So we go back to the book of Revelation. Let, let me tell you a little bit about what has happened to this point. Um, I told you the resurrected Jesus shows up. Shows up with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, saying to John the Revelator, I need you to, to deliver this message to all the churches, and this message is, we have won. Let's act like it. And so then there is, in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven different letters to seven different churches. To the angel, remember the gathered up spirit, to all of those different churches. And most of the time, most of those messages were warnings. Get it together. Get it together. There is one case and kind of one and a half cases where those letters, where those letters or those messages are very encouraging. Very encouraging. But most of the time, it's God saying to the gathered up spirit of a place, come on. We've won. Come on. Let's fight well. Come on. Look behind the curtain and see what's really happening. Come on. Don't be intimidated or intoxicated by the pressure or the pleasures offered by the empire. We've got to be us. We've got to be us. No matter who is sitting in the emperor's chair, we've got to be us. I would submit to you we're still in that kind of a struggle. I would submit to you that the book of Revelation is really pertinent and relevant for us today. My suspicion is that the resurrected Jesus still has lots to say to the gathered up spirits, the angels of all of our churches, yours, mine, and all of them in between. And my hunch is it will sound a whole lot like what was written in chapters 2 and 3. Come on, let's, let's act like we're on the winning side. Now, in nearly every case, the local church in question was asked to worship well. You guys worship well. I, I love what happens here. You know probably, though, that worship is not contained here, right? Now, we are people built to worship. We are built to worship. That is good news and bad news. It is good news because, actually, when we are led in worship, we find somehow that we want to be led in worship. And, and, a lot, and I could see, I could watch, I could hear a lot of you participate well in worship because we are made to worship. That's the good news. The bad news is, if we're not worshiping Jesus, we're going to be worshiping something or someone. And so, the constant refrain, the constant refrain throughout the book of Revelation, starting with these seven letters... Go something like this. Worship well. Because when you worship well, you enthrone the right king and you dethrone the wrong king. Make sense? Worship 
Worship well, worship well. Worship, when done properly, enthrones the right king. That would be the resurrected Jesus, amen? And dethrones the wrong king or ruler. And that would be anything or anyone else, amen? <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you another question, then we're going to come back to it later. You understand the difference between being a business person who happens to be a Christian as opposed to being a Christian who happens to be a business person, right? You understand the difference, right, between being an attorney who happens to be a Christian and a Christian who happens to be an attorney. There's a, there's a difference, right? You understand the difference between being a father who happens to be a Christian as opposed to a Christian who happens to be a father. There's a difference between being an American who happens to be a Christian, I told you I was going to frustrate you, as opposed to an American, as opposed to a Christian who happens to be an American. Because, my people, you are whatever you are first. Happy with that? Yeah. In other words, what happens is, when you and I, when we worship well, we are constantly moving the Christian part to the front of our self-understanding. Make sense? So that as Christians, we re-enter the world to be fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, important things, and people in the business world and people in the legal world and people in the medical world. We enter as Christians when we go to serve our country. We are Christians first before we are anything else because you are what you are first. This is scarier. Ready? You are worshiping whatever you are first. Oh, I'm glad I get to go home. You are worshiping whatever you are first. And if anything, if anything is in that first place spot and then telling you how to be Christian, man, you need to get to worshiping well. I love how quiet it gets in here. It's so good. <laughs> and so what you have periodically in the book of Revelation and you have one in chapters 4 and 5, you have these huge worship services. In fact, after that last letter, the very last part of chapter 3, the revelator is invited up into the heavens, literally through a little door. And through that little door, the revelator sees this incredible image. Now remember, it's apocalyptic literature. Please don't read this as if it's science. Please don't read this trying to find equations to determine who the Antichrist is or trying to figure out when the world will end. The book of Revelation is not meant to answer those questions. It is meant to answer the question, who's really God? And so, into this giant sanctuary goes John. And he sees this amazing worship service. I hope you did your homework. I hope you read chapter 1. I'm going to give you more. Read chapters 4 and 5 all the time. <laughs> read this incredible, incredible, incredible scene from which we get hymns like, holy, holy, holy. It's incredible. We're told right then and there, let's worship 
well. Let's worship well. And as we worship well, we enthrone the rightful king and we dethrone all other kings. And now we're to chapter 5, verse 1. At the close of one of these huge services, John looks up and he saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals, completely hidden. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? Now, lots of people have had lots of opinions about what this, this particular scroll means and what's hidden behind all of these seals. There are lots of opinions. I, I think I have some idea too. I agree with all of those scholars who would say, this is the gathered up angst of the people of God who are constantly asking this question, why? Why? Why have things worked out like this? Why is there suffering? Have you ever been one of those people to ask God why? If not, it's coming. Why, God? Why? 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 All of these questions and hopefully the answers are bound up within this scroll. The problem is we can't get into it. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or then to look into it. And then one of these elders who had been a part of the elder choir said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered and he's going to come down here and tear that, that scroll up because lions have huge teeth. Amen. Now what we have here, and maybe you don't see it, but what we have here is a little bit of an indication of the struggle that the people of God have always gone through to find the proper mascot. In fact, there is an argument that happens throughout the Old Testament that Christ actually takes up in the New. An argument between different authors, and the question that they are arguing is, is this one. How will we go about being the people of God? And what is God's role in our being the people of God. There were some voices who said, we will fight, and we will fight with the weapons of the enemy if we have to, because we are of the tribe, the lion of Judah. They so desperately wanted their mascot to be a lion. Y you know why, right? Because lions are huge. And, and, one of their nicknames out there in the wild, so I hear, is they are the kings of beasts. I love lions. What are those pictures next? Look at this. What's not to love? Look at that. Lions appeal to some of my more basic, deep, human, chronically normal desires to be in charge to be stronger than my competition, to win, right? Now, we've already used that word win. Yeah, lions win, right? Lions win. I mean, look at this. Uh, look, at this look at this next one. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Y'all, those are real lions. For the longest time, I pastor of OKC First, collected lions. Through my teenage years, through my college years, 
Even on into my ministry, I collected lions because I wanted this to be not just my mascot, I wanted this to be our mascot. In other words, I think for the longest time, I was a lot like all of those people within our particular tribe, within our particular conversation about faith, within our particular narrative, capital N, or with our story, capital S, I think I probably found myself with those people who wanted to be just bigger and stronger than all of our enemies. We will fight and we will win, said this side of the argument. Because God will fight with us, provide us with better weaponry, and our biceps will be bigger than theirs, and we will win, and God will be praised. Amen. But there was another side to that argument in the Old Testament. And the other side of that argument, found most clearly in the book of Daniel, said this. Something about us breaks when we fight with the weapons of the enemy. What if, what if we just allow God to fight for us? Hmm. And there was a battle. There was a battle, and it lasted all the way into the New Testament. You can see it. In the New Testament, you can see it in the Gospels. You can see Christ coming up against this. There were people in Christ's hometown. There were people in Christ's tribe who wanted to believe that God and the people of God would someday be restored to a position of strength. Where they would be the biggest bully on the block. This is why they were upset with Jesus who did not look like a warrior. He looked like a carpenter. And no offense to the carpenters, but you don't look like warriors. Remember, they got mad at him, right? It wasn't just Rome that was mad at him. It was his own people who got mad at him. You know why? Because he kept saying he was a Messiah. They wanted a lion. And they got Jesus What do you want? What do you need our mascot to be? Down deep. Tell me about your truth. (laughs) Heard a lot of that here recently. Speak your truth. Let's talk about your truth. Down deep. Down deep. What is your truth? What is your deeply held belief? Is it that the strongest win? then you must have a real hard time with Jesus. This is one of the more stunning moments in all of literature. Not just Christian literature, but in all of literature. So, this elder walks up and says, don't worry about it. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come and gnaw all of those seals off and just overpower that scroll and rip it open because strength always wins, right? Watch this. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures who were actually captives, captives of uh, enemy armies. And among the elders, 
a lamb. Standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns, which is a new definition of complete strength, and seven eyes, which is the way the book of Revelation says, all knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Let me paint this picture for you again. Here we have a nice center aisle here. When the elder came up to John and said, don't weep, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Everybody got out of the way because if there's a lion coming down, the way, you need to get out of the way if there's a lion coming, right? So they all back out of the way to behold this giant lion and who steps out? A lamb. <laughs> and not just that, a slaughtered lamb. And you can't see it. It's even beyond that in the original language. It is the always being slaughtered lamb. Scripture seems to know that what we want is a lion, but what we need is a slaughtered lamb. And I'm going to say that again because I got some very satisfying moans and nods out of that, but I need an amen. God seems to know, Scripture seems to know that down deep we want to win. We want to overpower. We want to eat our enemies. We want to defeat. God knows that down deep even, it has to, even as it has to do with faith, God knows that down deep we want a lion, but what we need, which is what we get, is a slaughtered lamb. Um, are you comfortable with our mascot being the always being slaughtered lamb? Now, that's kind of a weird t-shirt. But beyond it being an odd logo, are you comfortable with our mascot being <laughs> an always being slaughtered lamb? Because if that is who our leader is, then it says something about who we are to be as followers. Verse 7 says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And here's the thing, he opened it. I'll ask you again, how you feel about this? You don't have it on the screen, so I'll read it. When he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them, now he's talking about us, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. But how? Listen, 
We kind of like that part. Okay, kingdom of priests, bring it on, reign on earth. I like that too. As messengers of the always being slaughtered lamb. What this means is Christians don't get to beat up anybody, figuratively or literally. What this means is we believe that suffering love is more powerful than power. Oh, I want you to chew on that one a little bit. And totally, it's fine, it's fine. I get on a plane and go home tomorrow. You don't have to worry about this anymore, all right? But I want you to chew on this. If you're still into this Jesus character, I highly recommend it. Then we aren't lying people. We're always being slaughtered lamb people. And it should exhibit in how we do everything. Have you ever seen, obviously no one in the room, right? But have you ever seen Christians who use their faith to damage or brutalize somebody else because the other was either outside the boundaries or wrong? Have you ever seen that at Thanksgiving around the table? Anybody ever seen that? <laughs> have you ever seen it? Yes. Have you ever seen, and I'm telling you, I'm not being sarcastic. I know it's not this church, but you and I have both seen churches who figure out a way to use the gospel to hurt people. I feel like I've seen churches that can't wait to slide on their sweatshirts with lions all over them. Here's the problem with that. That's not Jesus. Are you saying, John, that Christians are just to be the doormats of the rest of society? Or are you supposed to roll over and let anybody do what they want with us? No, no, no. You just have to be like Jesus. How did Jesus handle conflict? His enemies. He loved them. Now, Simon Peter, he tried, right? Simon Peter tried to go ahead and insert a little bit of lion where Jesus was trying to do lamb. Remember what he does? Takes out his Swiss Army knife. <laughs> against a whole battalion of soldiers. And he takes the swing at somebody and actually it lands and cuts off Malchus's ear. Remember what Jesus does? Does Jesus go grab another sword? No, 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 no. He says, Simon Peter, we're not doing it like this. Though a lot of people still want to do it like that. It's hard, isn't it? He said, Simon Peter, no, we're not doing it like that. Goes and gets the ear. Would love to have seen this. <laughs> Goes and gets the ear gross and places it back on that guy's head. Repairs the damage done by the mistaken lion. And then goes and dies. And exhausts the power of the Roman Empire. All the Roman Empire ever wanted to be was strong, right? The Roman Empire, and listen, if I had more time with you, I would show you all the different ways that the Roman Empire loved to stand in front of the mirror and flex all the time. That's what they wanted to do all the time. And sure enough, they finally get 
Jesus. And they flex as best they can. And like they had done to 2,000 Jews in Christ's childhood, they humiliate and kill Jesus while Jesus whispers with his last words, Father, what do he say? Forgive them. Wouldn't it have been stronger for him to come down off that cross and fight them? We like those movies. It's called 300. <laughs> no, it took more strength to stay on the cross. You guys think? But the always being slaughtered lamb exhausts the power of the Roman Empire and all of the enemies from within Christ's own tribe exhausts all of their power and then one-ups it by coming back from the dead. But he came back with scars, remember? Wounds and scars. So as to say with, to us, this is how we fight, it's not easy. This is how we fight, and if you remember from chapter 1, this is how we win. Love is our chief export, remember? Let me add to that. Suffering love is our chief export. And then another worship service just breaks out. Would like for you to go back and read that worship service that breaks out again in chapter five. We're gonna move on and talk about this. Have you ever seen this image? It is the image of keep calm and carry on. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I love this one. And we're gonna, we're gonna see a video and we're gonna hear the story of where this image came from. But it's a little heavy in the room, so I wanna lighten it up. Uh, a little bit and talk about the different ways that this has been monkeyed with over the years and I love it. Here's another one. Uh, keep calm and rock on. Amen. Here's another one. Keep calm and Gary, Gary Grant. <laughs> Here's another one. Now panic and freak out. Here's another one. Fling yourself on the bed and sob uncontrollably. Keep calm and have a cupcake. Amen. Like that one. This is a good one. Keep calm and pretend like this is on the lesson plan. My wife loves that one. And my favorite, keep calm and call Batman. Amen. But you see this around, right? This keep calm and carry on thing. Uh, this little video is going to tell you the story behind it. Here's what I want you to be listening for in the story of the video. I want you to be listening for how it is that the crown logo, the crown logo, communicates a certain posture, a certain way to be British in this case, a certain life posture in the face of incredible ugly odds and in the face of the Third Reich, in the face of all of this that could go wrong, in the face of all that did go wrong, British government was saying to its people, yeah, but we're British. <laughs> Keep calm and carry on. I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it. And then I want you to make the quick application. I know that taking the posture of the always slaughtered lamb, <laughs> it's going to be hard. 
But maybe the best message for us in this moment is this. Keep calm. Carry on. Let's watch this. spring of 1939, during the build-up to war with Germany, the British government commissioned a series of propaganda posters. These posters were intended to offer the public reassurance in the dark days that lay ahead. They were required to be uniform in style and were to feature a special and handsome typeface, making them difficult for the enemy to counterfeit. They used the crown of King George VI as the only graphic device and had just two colours. Of the three final designs that went into production, the first poster carried the slogan, Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. The second poster had the words, Freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. But the third design, of which over two and a half million posters were printed, simply read, Keep calm and carry on. The first two designs were distributed in September of 1939 and appeared up and down the country in shop windows and railway platforms. But the Keep Calm posters were held in reserve, intended for use only in times of crisis or invasion. In the end, the poster was never officially issued, and it remained unseen by the public, until a copy turned up more than 50 years later. It was found in a second-hand bookshop called Barter Books in the northeast corner of England. by a couple, Stuart and Mary Manley. The building used to be an old Victorian railway station. Huge rows of stacked shelves now stand in the place where the tracks would have been, but the station's old tea rooms and waiting rooms are still there. It was in 2000 that Stuart found the poster in a box of dusty old books that had been bought at auction. Mary liked it so much she had it framed and put it up near the shop till, and it proved so popular with the customers that a year later they began to sell copies. Since that time, the poster has been reproduced, parodied and trivialised, and has become a truly iconic image of the 21st century. It is hard to say exactly why such a phrase from a bygone decade would have so much appeal and resonance now. Its design is considered simple and timeless, and now commonly recognisable. However, it is perhaps the words on the poster that people find most enchanting. Like a voice out of history, it offers a very simple, warm-hearted message to inspire confidence in others during difficult times, and it's something that should never fade from fashion. To keep calm and carry on. study of the book of Revelation has convicted me so many times. Convicted me and convinced me of this truth. The book of Revelation isn't so much about some far off into the distance battle. The book of Revelation is about a battle that you and I encounter all the time. As different entities vie for our attention, vie for our allegiance, as different faith systems and kings and queens and kingdoms try to pressure us, intimidate us, or intoxicate us into being something other than who we are meant to be. 
We are meant to be on the winning side. We are meant to be the people of God. We are meant to be in this battle fighting uniquely as our hero fought and won. As the always being slaughtered lamb. I'm a parent. It's hard for me to tell Taylor, my girl, and Drew, my son, get out there and take the posture of the always being slaughtered lamb. But that's what it means to be Christian. And it is the deep belief of the church. It is the deep belief of scripture. It is the deep belief of your savior that this is how he won. This is how we win. And this is how God redeems creation in and through us. This is how we actually fulfill our calling to be priests who reign on earth. You guys probably do it here, and I believe the band is on their way unless they've gotten lost somewhere. There they are, there they are. We pray this very interesting prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And if you'll let me, I just want to say it, because I'm going to stop periodically and underline what we've said, okay? But I want you to be on the lookout for lines that say what we're saying. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Catch this on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Ready? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to tell you what I tell my people. Folks, we are going to pray this prayer every week, every week, every week until we believe it. We're going to pray it every week. Me too, your pastor. We're going to pray it every week. And I know that over a period of time, as we pray these words, and as I say things like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I know that this prayer slowly but surely takes up ground my mind, my imagination, and slowly but surely, God is taking this lion, fashioning it into a lamb. What do you want your Christian mascot to be? If somehow you want somehow in a deep place you need for it to be a lion I love you hear me you have a problem your problem is not with me it's with the way your savior sought to fight and win what would be different in your life if this is you what would be different in your life and in all of the world that you can reach if you were to trade out the mascot lion for the mascot, the always being slaughtered lamb, what would people think about Christians? What would people think about Christianity? What would people think about your church? What would people think about your Savior? 
if you were a priest in the tradition of the always being slaughtered lamb. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, but it's so hard. (laughs) Because so many other voices, perhaps the voices at home or the voices at work, maybe the, the voices that we hear within our own minds and hearts, so many of those voices are encouraging us to win at all costs, to defeat, to conquer, And yet, God, we see something different. We see something powerfully different in this always being slaughtered lamb that we understand to be Christ. Father, can you do this for us? Can you, in the midst of a culture that glorifies strength, that worships power, in the midst of this culture. Can you show us the wisdom of suffering love? In other words, God, can you call us again to ministry, to mission, to the priesthood, and show us how a group of people can change Households can change a city, can change a country, can change the world. If and when they're ready to trade in their lions for slaughtered lambs. God, judge us. But in your grace, take us by the hand and show us where we need to go. Show us what we need to say. Show us how to say it. Give us opportunities to practice the posture of Christ, the posture of the always being slaughtered lamb. And God, give us the capacity to worship. Give us some glimpse of why this news, this this revelation of the always being slaughtered lamb as the ultimate expression of love and grace and power Give us some idea of why it was that the people again erupt into singing and worship the mention of this lamb. I pray for this good church. I pray for the leadership. I pray, God, that you would love them more deeply and more tenderly than ever before. May they be aware of your capacity to suffer love May they be aware of the choice that you continue to make for them. And then may we all respond in grace. May we respond to grace with grace to all the world we can reach around us. And we have prayed all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you.
this has come to the end of the week and it's been an incredible week. First week has touched our lives, I hope, and pray that Sam came in over the weekend and he brought us hope. Hope for those desperate situations that we're in in life and he encouraged us and taught us all kinds of hand motions, got our exercise in. And then John came with a humble message on the generosity and the effects of generosity in our lives and what it means to live a generous life. And then John has taught us how to live this life out uh, in a world that's uh, maybe hostile toward us. Maybe it's hostile in your environment that you live in, but he certainly taught us from Revelations that we are called to love and live as the slaughtered lamb of God. And you know the awesome thing about that Greater is he that lives in us than he that lives in the world. So let's go and be the kind of people that God would have us to be and live out this thing and do our very best and encourage one another and be the church here in Salem Fields that God wants us to be as we continue to impact our community. Thanks for being faithful. Now I'm gonna tell you, we're gonna leave. We're gonna take an offering tonight. We need $2,500 yet. Now y'all supposed to go, yay! Remember John? Yeah, woo! So... Let's just get it done tonight, okay? <laughs> Let's do our best. I was gonna have the guys come, but I think you'll give just as much as you leave as you would if the buckets came, right? The machines are out there and all that, so give as unto the Lord and God will take care of the rest. Thank you so much. Have a great week. <laughs>